This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nathan Smith, a host for the New Books Network. I have the pleasure today to speak with John Howland, professor of music at the NTNU, which is the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, about his book, Hearing Lux Pop, Glorification, Glamour, and the Middle Brow in American Popular Music, which was published by the University of California Press in 2021. Uh, to steal some good words from the inside flap, Hearing Lux Pop explores a deluxe production aesthetic that has long thrived in American popular music, in which popular music idioms are merged with lush string orchestrations and big band instrumentation. John Howland presents an alternative music history that centers on shifts in timbre and sound through innovative uses of orchestration and arranging. Traveling from symphonic jazz to the Great American Songbook, the teenage symphonies of Motown to the contrapolitan sounds of Nashville, the sunshine pop of the Beach Boys, to the blending of soul and funk into the 1970s disco, and Jay-Z's hip-hop orchestra events to indie rock bands performing with the Brooklyn Philharmonic. This book attunes readers to hear the discourses gathered around the music and its associated images as it examines pop's relation to aspirational consumer culture, theatricality, sophistication, cosmopolitanism, and glamorous lifestyles. And with that, John, welcome. Thank you very much, Nathan. Wonderful to uh, be here. I'm honored to join you and have the opportunity to talk about uh, American Lux Pop. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, as we you know, were just talking beforehand, we, we, we had to cut short our ramblings um, and, and pulling <laughs> things in. So I, I'm excited to uh, see what it's we can easy. do. Yeah, it, it's way too easy. <laughs> Luckily, we have, we have a little bit of a script to keep us on track here. So um, can you start out just by telling us a little bit about yourself and your past work, uh, um, in particular, how you got into uh, this, this project? Absolutely. Um, I'm an American, uh, presently living in Scandinavia. Uh, NTNU is in Trondheim, Norway, which is quite a ways away from where I'm at right now, which is Lund in southern Sweden, which is much closer to Copenhagen. Um, so 
before before that, I, I, I taught for about 10 years uh, at Rutgers Newark outside New York, and I was teaching in a jazz history master's program and an American studies program. Um, in both of these places, I've taught pop, jazz, music and media topics, uh, but also classical music, opera, uh, and so forth. Um, I'm a, a lot of that comes from my background as a musician. I'm uh, trained as a classical vocalist as a as a bachelor's student, but at the same time, I was performing jazz and pop. Um, I as a collector, a crate digger. Uh, I have long had big years as a consumer and a musician. Um, ultimately, that led me to being what we call an historical musicologist. Uh, I'm interested in understanding how the music works and how this intersects with cultural expression. But also as part of, you know, these, this, this background, I always seem to have these older classical mentors, highbrow uh, classical mentors, to borrow terms from there you know, youth, uh, and they'd throw around these terms like middlebrow and talking about George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, this now 100-year-old mixture of jazz and concertized music. Um, when I got started in musicology, it was uh, around the 1990s. Uh, and there was a bit of a change going on, and it was just moving from being largely art music all of the time to opening up to the possibility of jazz, which was elevated as America's classical music, uh, a phrase from the day, and a bit of pop at the time. Uh, my MA thesis, uh, mid-1990s, uh, you could not choose jazz or pop at Boston University, where I was at. I have a thesis on uh, how Hugo Wolf's Lieder relates to, to opera. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and but by the late 1990s, I was at Stanford University, um, and I got an op unusual opportunity to design and teach my own course. And what I proposed was Duke Ellington because it was his, uh, they, they have an excellent jazz program there and it was the centennial of Ellington. They had also opened up at the Smithsonian, um, the Duke Ellington archive where thousands upon thousands of pages of, of manuscript scores and other materials were now suddenly available. And uh, so that really kind of opened up what became my dissertation topic, which, uh, again, jazz was more uh, accepted as a topic than, say, pop studies, at least at Stanford. and. Uh, it also, you know, underscores that I've been working, you know, was interested in working with arranging as a, as a, as a topic. Um, but uh, this, it, looking, looking at this music, you start to see a lot of connections to entertainment. And so this, this opened up a lot of the seeds that became, you know, Hearing Lux Pop as a, as a later book. My first book was, was Ellington Uptown in 2009, but that, that too, you know, talks about popular films and how this relates to uh, this concert jazz of Duke Ellington relates to uh, 
film arranging, Broadway arranging, uh, Black Harlem shows. Um, uh, so all the, during this period, I was I was dabbling in signed projects that don't quite get published for a, a bit later, but working on early jazz with strings topics and Sinatra style uh, pop research papers and, and so forth. But you know that's really where the project uh, emerges, and it be, by the time of finishing uh, Ellington Uptown in two thousand nine, it was pretty clear that I was going towards something that would become hearing Lux Pop. Yeah, no, and and you ended up uh, teaching, like it, it was interesting to yeah, as you were kind of tracing some of like the general uh, you know disciplinary ch changes that occurred across musicology and music theory, uh, the general like 80s 90s start to include some pop music in some quarters but it depends on the school um but then you ended up as we, you know we were talking you ended up teaching at one of the uh one of the places that is it was in the mid-century a hotbed for uh elevating jazz which is kind of interesting i, I don't know if absolutely like, and, Rogers and the and you know is it Mar marshall stearns Marshall Stearns was the guy who starts the Institute for Jazz Studies, yeah. you know, the nation's oldest, largest archive for jazz in his living room in uh, the village. Yeah. And uh, I would have great fun pulling out his class notes and his notes on who was in his classes yeah. uh, when teaching at Rutgers. Um, mm -hmm. But it but, you know, these these issues of the brows of high, middle and low and elevating jazz or elevating pop so it has greater cultural currency you know have always been part of what i've i've taught and and researched yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah it's that's a uh, it just seems like that was a fortuitous um like yeah, academic placement you know like being able to work there i'm sure was also um useful or you know like, like oh no absolutely absolutely useful i mean you've seen for example things like the you know, my transcriptions of the, uh, by transcriptions, I mean, putting into notation, uh, the Charlie Parker with strings arrangements and those and, and a number of others are at the Institute for Jazz Studies. But, you know, at that time, it was a bit looser. So uh, if you were part of the staff, you could actually go back into the stacks and there would be a box saying, don't look here, right? <laughs> you look inside and there's Stan Kenton arrangements, Charlie yeah. Parker with strings, things <laughs> that that somebody had photocopied at some point when they yeah. shouldn't have. Right. And right. it ended up on the shelves. But it, it shows, you know, that I have this uh, phrase of, you know, junk shop history that, you know, a project like this, you really have to look around and, mm -hmm. and in odd corners because a lot of things are not labeled easily to find and they may show up in places junk shops or shelves that you're not supposed to look <laughs> uh, as you're trying to put it together yeah no and, and we're going to come back to that because that's you 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 really uh stream together things that might seem like junk shop. i mean not all of these are you know like i guess quite junk shop but maybe maybe some not definitely are some definitely are. Don't get me wrong, but like mood you know, music like, albums of the fifties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. But uh, yeah, yeah. You know, like you string together a lot of how things things kind of like that. Where like, oh, here's this 
photocopy of the arrangement that ended up in this one place. And, you know, this one person was really, in, you know, and like kind of tracing together how arrangers borrow from one another, work with one another and do and kind of that. So that isn't, and that's what I meant more by not in the junk shop, but like the, yeah, the, like yeah, yeah. The, perhaps behind the, behind the scenes. Um, yeah, but you know, some of this stuff is, uh, you know, the first part of my work and some of it is in, in here, you know, families uh, of arrangers can have boxes of this stuff stuck to tucked away in an attic when, uh, you know, and for example, the uh, um, uh, one of the chapters uh, the about the Ronettes and uh, Be My Baby in Central, uh, Centrally, um, uh, the arranger is a guy named Jack Nietzsche working for Phil Spector and they had a great partnership. Um, took me years to find contact to the family and for them to actually be willing to talk to me. And then when I go to find them, uh, you know, I hear hear from the son that, uh, uh, you know, he has all of his father's arrangements. They're in a storage unit in North Hollywood covered in rat shit with stuff, uh, uh, you know, in black garbage bags. Um, sure. You know, yeah. so that's another aspect of, you know, junk shop history. That was kind of an indie, uh, 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 Indiana Jones moment of musicology. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, you had the, you had the, you had to take the artifact and then as the, uh, as the storage unit started, you know, imploding, run out <laughs> with your, aren't you, high quality trash he bag. Was, yeah, he was immensely generous. He yeah. ultimately, you know, got me a, a nearby hotel room to spread things out and look and you oh, know, dust off the <clears throat> the filth uh, so that I could look through it. But it was literally what he described. Everything was there, but, you know, all in garbage bags and, and falling apart. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, before we dive, before we dive more into... Um... Uh, random storage units i like to give the <laughs> listeners like you know the broad the broad picture here so the book is a large swath of american popular music almost 100 years worth i mean you cover that but in particular you're going from roughly 1920 up to 1970 80 as like some of the the meat of lux pop although yeah. you, you do uh expand past um so before diving into particulars um can we set up the continuity that you're calling Lux Pop for the listeners. Um, maybe the most general entry point would be um, talking briefly about Brow Discourse and how it threads its way in and out of the text. Um, so could you start with just uh, outlining, I guess, first the traditional understandings of low, middle, and high brow? Yeah, my, my work's definitely been circling around what, you know, in mid-century America, we call the brows. Um, and in, in that period, in the mid 20th centuries, it, it, it's really 30s through early 60s that there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, popular culture discussion of, of the brows down to, you know, charts about what the highbrow, the upper middle brow, the lower middle brow, what they consume for records and furniture and, and drinking and, and so forth. Um, it's it's fascinating stuff, um, but it comes down to the, this framing of highbrow versus lowbrow, the idea of art and high culture versus mass culture and, and pop. There's a lot of anxiety 
uh, it's a period anxiety about uh, brow discourse, and it's a period where there's you know still a large popular culture um, uh, respect for high culture, even if it's not consumed as much. But you get to my father's generation of you know the early hi-fi era. It's the booming years of concert music being sold, and people wanted to improve themselves, which is a very middle brow uh, cultural idea of if you just buy the right things and in inform yourself, you will rise in cultural stature. Um, it's funny because, you know, despite the prominence of all of this in American culture, it's not until the 1990s that some humanities scholars, Lawrence Levine and Joan Rubin, pick up on this topic, um, but it also very quickly becomes something that's central to my dissertation as I'm trying to figure out concert jazz and someone like Duke Ellington negotiating, working in nightclubs, uh, and then being asked to write, uh, you know, concert style scores for Hollywood films or for these nightclub shows. Um, but before that, there's a, something called symphonic jazz. I mentioned Paul Whiteman earlier, and his he's a band leader who commissions George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue for a big New York concert in 1924, 100 years ago, just a couple of days ago. Um, and but he there's a phrase called making a lady of jazz, and that you know the term lady means it's it's pushing jazz upwards. But there's the feminine side. There's a class side, there's a number of things that are wrapped around that phrase. Um, but it, in general, what he was doing was taking the, the inspiration from black jazz, doing jazzy music, and then adding symphonic orchestration. So this whole long century of adding pop music plus strings and some orchestral instruments um, really has its roots right in this this point and there's some aesthetics that are really tied there that are quintessential to America mm -hmm. um, but by mid-century you get somebody like uh, there's a Columbia uh, University writer Dwight McDonald who does write for some popular magazines uh, as well but he's one of many people that are are, are getting upset uh, from a highbrow you know, stance looking down about the potential confusion of art and what he's calling middle brow entertainment. Um, uh, things that that, you know, are popular mass culture, but they look or sound like art, uh, but, you know, actually vulgarize his term, vulgarize high culture standards. Um, but as I said, you know, a lot of the music that I've been looking at, there's there's a vast amount of middle brow works, uh, people that write concert works. They're, they're trained in high culture and they write concert works that are meant to be for the little people, the the yeah. the, the everyday man, something that's accessible. Right. Uh, so that's high looking low. But there's also this reverse of low looking high and Many times it's not always meant to be just, you know, a concert work. There's so much, so many radio orchestras and other contexts where you have music that's essentially a big production number, turning a pop tune into a 10 minute arrangement that sounds concertized. Um, 
and this is all over Broadway, Hollywood, radio. Uh, it's sophisticated, glamorous music to, to most people. Mm -hmm. um, it's what I call artful entertainment in many ways. Yeah. Um, and it's really not, um, I, I start this in the late 1990s, trying to work it out with concert jazz. Um, and it's not really until the 2010s that some younger colleagues uh, organize a conference uh, on music in the middle brow. And that's just that, that work that came together with that, which I've been involved in, um, is just turning out a volume right now. So I think it's a topic that's, that's coming back, this negotiation of the brows. Yeah. Um, but I had to, you know, you know, argue with them, hey, we're kind of forgetting this whole, you know, the pop culture side, what, what uh, something like my friend Andy Flory presented a paper at that first conference about, uh, you know, the Motown trying to elevate uh, 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 black pop in, in their production style. It's a different take than what I, I'm working on, though I talk about Motown. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so there's, there's so many different uh, ways that this can be brought in. And um, some ways it's also um, uh, like I, I was just working on, a, I mentioned I was working on a, editing a paper. Uh, that's a, uh, what it concerns is how the Whiteman sound really becomes the sound of Hollywood films every time you see New York, right? Yeah. Uh, big band plus string sound. Uh, but I compare it to kind of an elevated pop sound. You know, you know how... Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn uh, were said to have this mid-Atlantic elevated accent yep. somewhere between halfway in the Atlantic between England and the U.S., right? You, yeah, yeah. You, you get high in American low. But that, that's kind of what's going on in, in a lot of this pop. It's trying to sound higher than it actually is. Um, but it, it goes directly into, uh, you know, the great American songbook of the 50s, you know, string heavy jazz pop of the 40s and 50s. Um, and there's this term uh, in the book that I kind of turn around, a guy named Thomas Hine uh, is a writer. Uh, and he has a book, maybe 20 years old now, where he talks about mid-century uh, popular mass market luxury home goods, thinks... You know, since I'm, you know, talking to you from Sweden, middle class Scandinavian modern furniture, um, high end stereos and so forth. Uh, and he calls it it populux, you know, lux for the masses. And so as soon as I saw that, I immediately thought, you know, and there was some phrase from Kanye West of all people that he, you know, was, as he does, goes on and says, I'm writing Lux Pop. <laughs> and it became clear that that was the right thing for, for what I'm right. talking yeah. about. Yeah. With Lux, and as you know, that was one of my favorite turns in the book. And you may have pulled this from from that, the the, the Lux, or the, the one, uh, the, the pop. The Thomas Hine? The Thomas Hine, yeah. I, I can't remember where exactly, where you're like, yeah, it's Lux like deluxe or uh, you, you know but it has the e just for class you know Silent so e. <laughs> yeah right it doesn't signify uh, anything other than its own you know elevation yeah yeah but it's so quintessentially you yeah. know madison avenue advertising yeah. Ooh, it's got to sound french the funny exactly. thing is exactly. of course yeah. Euro europeans flip it on the other other direction you know so everything is you know if you want to make something classy here you make it sound american <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. There's nothing quite so um, quite so American as you know fetishizing European stuff. You know. Oh it, yeah. It, it, oh especially yeah. Across the you know this era. Um, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. For for these class uh, the, the these class signifiers and, yes, and sophistication yes. signifiers. And. Okay, so I, I do want to flip. I, I want to flip this this back because, like, you're in some sense you, you're bringing out a different aspect than. I mean, we were just talking about like aspirationalists. If this is the middle brow, you can either be uh, high, being democratic and going low, or low going high, and that's you know one way of reading the middle brow. But you're kind of you're kind of pulling out this more this lux, this classy side. Um, and I, so I, which isn't quite, I mean, it's aspirational, but it's not high art aspirational. It's kind of its own. It's Correct. Own yeah. Um, so I was and, you, and you gotta, you gotta say it in that Jersey style. He's classy, right? Uh, yeah. You right. know, right. you know, yeah. you gotta have a little bit of, you know, uh, uh, Sopranos nasal uh, spin yeah. on it, you know, yeah, because it, right. cap yeah. it captures that, that idea of, you know, Sinatra, the Hoboken mafioso wannabe uh, in tuxedo at, you know, Vegas in front of a uh, uh, string orchestra and sparkling brass uh, and reed sac uh, sections. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's to the, you know, like the, you know, the the old, the old rich at the Mets, like that's not the image. That's well, not the is. image, yeah, but it gets played with absolutely yes. though. Yes, 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 yeah, um, yeah, no, 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 yeah, right, no, and it, it's more of like not that people aren't actually like referencing the highbrow, but like, yeah, you're putting your your finger on that. It's like even if they're like they, they might be saying something about highbrowness, um, as the kind of like you know the at the met type type approach. But as you're saying, like it needs a little bit of that Jersey accent, a little bit of grit that is that signals, even if they're in some sense, what you're trying to pull out is even as people are saying the Met, they're signaling uh, Las Vegas and Lounge and, and Sinatra in a certain way. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, variations on what that can mean. There's a term that I, I throw out, and I, I don't know if everybody captures it, but this, I try to emphasize, emphasize it multiple times, sustained juxtapositions. If, if I mentioned that guy, McDonald, right? This, this critic of the middle brow from the, the 60s, and he was really concerned about the homogenization of, of culture, that everything gets mixed together so it's indiscriminate and it's just one, blended gray <laughs> cultural mass. Yeah, but right. a lot of these entertainments um, are great fun because they actually sustain the tensions. You don't, you, you, you want, the, you know, the, the screaming trumpet solo, the, the sexy sax solo against the lush strings, mm -hmm. right? They're, and it's often um, something that comes up in stagings uh you see this repeatedly but that's what one reason why i started with the jay-z and the kanye west yeah uh yeah. uh big concerts because it's all about the the juxtapositions of black versus white the you know driving a lexus on the on this you know on the stage but then spitting street level lyrics and uh uh 
and you know, but having a, a an all female orchestra and you know dressed in in black night clothes while you're uh, wearing street clothes. It's it it it's something that we play with repeatedly. Uh, it's uh, Jay Z calls it his sarcasm, but you know it's uh, it's not exactly that. Yeah, it's, it's, right. We just kind of like to revel in the tension, the cultural tensions, yeah. uh, and have them be inherent in someone like Sinatra. That it's it's never resolved. Sinatra can go walk among you know kings and queens, but still talk like he's from Hoboken if he wants. Yeah, no, and uh, like that's and that's exactly what I was trying to say. It's not, yeah, not 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 the Met per se, but they might be pointing toward it, you know. But that, yeah. but really, what they're doing is they're holding open that space. And in some sense, you're, you know, you're trying to um, uh, put put emphasis on that space and look at that space uh, instead of just going, oh, this is pointing up or pointing down. It's like, no, let's actually focus on that site of tension. And absolutely absolutely so I was wondering uh, i mean this is a very easy uh way into it um you know tell us a little bit about conspicuous symphonization as opposed to uh like what you're going to call classicist i think i think that was it classicist gestures so like we yeah have, like in pop music i guess what i'm trying to say is can you detangle we have a pop something that reads as a pop recording but you have the lush lush strings and our gut says violin might as well be the Met. This is looking up, but you're trying to pull out something that isn't quite just nothing but we're trying to be high. Yeah, I, I, I wanted I wanted to 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 get some better sense of clarification articulation around that. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a cultural historian works with. A lot of what we call primary sources, original original documents. It can be journalism, press, promotional materials, interviews from the day, sometimes later too, uh, but and, and so forth. Um, there's a huge amount of this, as I'm sure so sure, sure you saw in the book. Um, but it gives insight into how people intended uh, their music to be, or marketed marketed it, or uh, you know how it was received. Um, you know, and some of this is evidence in a lot of, there's a lot of visual, uh, audiovisual uh, uh, primary sources that I bring in, old films and uh, performances and so forth. Uh, but it, it mar helps me mark out this luxe, classy or glamorous musical entertainment. But when you start looking at the music, um, there's... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I teach a, a film music uh, course. I've done it for 20 plus years now, but we, we, we spend some time early on about the, this idea called musical topics, but these patches of music that have, you know, certain details, characteristic details that every time we hear them, because we've been taught through, through our media, they have specific social cultural associations and musical traditions. You know, the classic might be, Darth Vader's theme of Star Wars, you get that march, dun, 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 dun. It's in heavy brass, it's in minor, it's low, it's sounding doomy and threatening, right? There's a number of things that are working there, all kind of together to create this immediate uh, understanding of, oh, that's not the good guy, right? 
Um, but there's these these textures also have you know connotations of of register or uh, which you know we're pointing to the brows of you know how we view high middle low culture and gradations in between but pop theater film advertising rangers really really do think about this uh, uh as a way to help music communicate we it's, it's kind of part of just the language of music that we share across popular culture and other uh, areas of uh, cultural expression. Um, all of this, of course, points to associations and cliches of instrumentation. Um, and it's not just strings. I mean, a certain electric bass sound is gonna be associated with funk or disco. Um, masked melodramatic strings, you get a big string orchestra, particularly if you're playing certain types of figures or textures will certainly evoke Western concert music or uh, Hollywood film music traditions. Um, sometimes it's kind of vague along that, that, that spectrum. But we also have this, this tradition that I look at that, you know, pop music has been using this for 80, 90 years with, with a good background even before that. Um, that's not really, it's not Western concert music. It's not Beethoven, dun, 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 right? That's not the music we're talking about. Um, but these, I, I talked about juxtapositions earlier, and that that's really where a lot of this, you know, comes to life is these juxtapositions in pop arranging. Think, for example, you, you uh, there's so, so much popular music that does this. You get a dramatic opening orchestral uh, statement, a fanfare, strings, brass, timpani, uh, you know, starting a recording that then, you know, slides into a, a grooving funk band or something like that. Um, you, you know, once you get into the recording and it's kind of, it makes clear its genre, the other stuff is extra. It's what they call production sweetening back in the day, actually still to this day. Um, and there are certain things that, you know, if you if you do start off with dun, 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 right, we know what that means. That's classicistic. It's a it's an effect. It's pointing back to earlier music. It's making a gesture that doesn't sound anything like the funk. So it's saying I'm in a different genre right now for just a second. But what's going to be fun is the juxtaposition uh, with, with uh, you know, what the real groove of the recording is. Um, where I started to think about some of these things uh, uh, outside classical, some of the, you know, back in the 90s when I was looking at writings that were already done on concert jazz, there were just so many things that we're spending time like, oh, that's a blue note and that's, you know, there's a certain sort of harmony. So that says jazz. Um, but they it really didn't quite get into uh, uh, it, it was too, it was far too simplistic. And, um, you know, we have these traditions that of arranging and entertainment that really, uh, you know, are very consistent from the 50s through the at least the 70s, or I'm sorry, from the 20s up through the, the 70s, um, of string sounds, you know, uh, strings like 
that do a, a, a lush chord in the background or shift with each chord change um, in like you might get in uh, the Sinatra uh, sort of background. It's not trying to sound like classical music. And some of this carries directly over in the 80s when you start getting synthesizers like the uh, uh, you know, the, the, the first string synths uh, that are used in, in disco, often paired with other string orchestras, but then you, you uh, get samplers that, you know, play back a recording of uh, a string orchestra. But it's no longer really being used to just sound like strings. It's a, just a backing texture. That's one of the problems why I don't get too deep after 1980. Um, uh, there, there's other things uh, to, to do better before that complication, but it, it shows a certain point that there is a, a popular music tradition that doesn't actually need to see the, the conspicuous symphonization, as I, I, I call it. But, you know, to, to hit that one term, think of every big spectacular, like televised events, Grammys or Oscars, you get the, the pop tracks are regularly presented in these newly lush enhanced orchestral arrangements, the string, the singer in front of a, you know, masked body of, of orchestral in, uh, uh, musicians. I think of, for example, um, it's going back, but just because we're talking about the book, uh, Isaac Hayes, when he's asked to conduct the, the orchestra uh, uh, at the Grammys, for uh, the shaft theme, and he's wearing his chain mail vest while conducting the tuxedoed orchestra. Uh, uh, and you, you get this juxtaposition that I was, I, was, I was talking about, but very frequently there's this spectacle element that uh, really is calling attention to this conspicuous symphonization. There's something about these masses of instruments that maybe is not always classicistic, but it's playing out in a performative sense, a ju this same juxtaposition of this other serious, uh, 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 respected tradition. Um, I think, for example, of the Jay-Z Radio City uh, performance with the what he called the Hustler Symphony Orchestra. This was in 2006. And, uh, one thing that I, I pull out is his phrase. He, he likes to talk about taking hip hop to a whole nother level of respect. And that's something that plays out in all these spectacular events. You're trying to take pop to get, you know, getting back to our brows here. You're trying to move it up the, uh, the, the brow ladder to gain more cultural respect. There's something uh, that's involved in this towards elevation. Um, but it's playing out in the in the uh, in the orchestral effect uh, in in parallel to the performative uh, context as well. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, and it's uh, it, in some sense a, a lot of it, and it, it is including like, and I guess I should also note that you are including these classicist gestures, like you are talking about them, but you're you're looking for a little bit more specificity, and as you kind of brought out, there's. Uh, I mean, to give us just like, or to give the listeners, you know, uh, like two things, like there's, um, there there are direct references to classical music, as you were kind of like, you know, 
saying, I mean, I think of like uh, the 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 piccolo trumpet in Penny Lane. Um, yeah, uh, perfect. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is like, like it, it is still part of this, like we, we're fusing things, but that's a clear signifier of classicism, you know, like that's, and they're trying yeah. to pull that versus. It, stylistically, it just pops out uh, mm -hmm. you know, in contrast to everything else that's happening in the track. Right. It right. says, and look it, at me. <laughs> it says, look at me. And also I am talking specifically about classical music and I'm even specifying a vague like era of classical music, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You know, like as you're kind of saying all these like insert pop artist, um, they make a symphony arrangement and there might be little like they, they add things and there's stuff to dive into. But like perhaps a, an over um, generalization is the uh, the strings are just playing the sustained chords behind what would yeah. be the track and the violins are spaced in an octave and they're just screeching up there real high, you know, and they might have like a small counter melody, but that doesn't scream. You, you, like you don't hear that and go oh yes baroque music you're just like oh these are strings <laughs> and there's an elevation like they're totally referencing the larger idea of these strings are elevating but they're absolutely not, yeah. but they're not yeah it's it, it's different than like penny lane where it's just like no this is i'm referencing classicism or not classicism yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what i and what i try to do is articulate uh a, a breadth of gestures along a spectrum between pop practice on the one side and you know classical references on the other because it, it is and and it's funny because there are um you you can't always take what somebody says that at, at face value or at least you want to complement it with with a, a bigger picture understanding i'm thinking for example of barry white and his orchestra uh the unlimited uh, uh uh, love orchestra um there's just so many beautiful quotes from barry white and his his musical director and his uh, uh, arrangers uh, uh you know where they're again kind of borrowing from jay-z you know they're they're taking their music to a whole other level of respect uh and they talk about it as classical music and that's fine there's different ways that other mm -hmm. people talk uh about it because the you know they don't it's in in popular culture we don't have a lot of nuance in the way that we talk about it uh when we see the the symphonic orchestra but what i try to do in this book is from from the jazz era through you know hip-hop uh to show that there's just so many rich ways that this has been combined but there's a kind of a shared and growing aesthetic uh across that hundred years uh where we're doing something different than just referencing classical music. There's right. many other nuances. Yeah, no, and, and you know, to, I guess to give uh, an example from your book, that's the obverse of the Penny Lane. This is a direct reference. Um, and to kind of what you were just saying is um, like in the Phil Spector um, um, uh, chapter and the Renettes, um, people were talking about how you know there, there's discourse about how this is Wagnerian pop music and it's a yes. little symphony you know and it's like that's fine that people are saying that but then you listen to it and there's nothing in there is not the analog to where the Penny Lane was referencing Baroque music there yeah. isn't analog other than just sheer mass of of a, sheer, like sheer mass and maybe yeah. a certain bleeding bleeding French yeah. horn 
you yes, know, I, I spend some right. time around that. But that also, I mean, I try to attune my ear to, we, we talked about marketing language earlier. Yeah, yeah. There's just a way that, that uh, and I love it, that Americans like to over-characterize things. And, yes. you know, that it's, you know, so Phil Spector talking about his little symphonies for kids, yeah. you know, with, you know, pop with Wagnerian overtones. There's, there's all sorts of cultural work he's trying to do yes. in marketing yeah. what the music is. Um, right. And then yeah, it's it, trying to discredit, like, I just want to know, it's like, even though you're saying like, in some sense, you're saying, no, this doesn't sound like Wagner, but you're, but you're also trying to like affirmatively be like, but what is being signaled here? What is this thing in this marketing language or whatever that is trying to be put into attention? Sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh no, absolutely, absolutely. That's well. That's well said. It's it's that that one is one of my fun, you know, it, one of the fun chapters because you really you know tease tease apart what's how the music is being received and what they say what they're saying that the music is supposedly doing and why that would work with teens. Teens are going to rush out and buy Wagnerian pop. What's that about? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, it, it it's one of the chapters where I'm able to you know bring uh, you know female artist perspectives in quite well as a as a yeah. juxtaposition because they didn't hear it that way. They heard it as the Ronettes, uh, uh, Ronnie Spector, heard it as rock and roll, as dramatic, yeah. melodramatic, almost cinematic rock and roll. Um, uh so yeah it's uh it's taking an object and i do this repeatedly in the book where you look at it from the front but then you look at it below and above and to the side yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know try to take everybody at face value but then also pull it apart a little bit to see yeah. you know is is there something else going on here because it, it doesn't quite make 100 percent right. sense to call this wagnerian right. pop <laughs> yeah, no, and and it's it's the delicate balance of saying like, like like the danger is to say, like you don't want to say, you don't want you don't want to discredit what people are what these people are saying, especially exactly. especially often as you talk throughout the book about you brought in, uh, Ronnie, uh, issues of like this is differentially, th this language and even with Jay Z, um, across race, gender etc like region yeah. these things are all part and parcel of it and so in some sense you're saying like i don't want to say objective but in, in like a distance thing there's nothing about you know phil specter and the you know the renettes that sounds wagnerian really but you also want to like you don't want to discredit and be like oh that's bullshit let's not pay attention to that you're like no let's pay attention to that and try to pull apart how these different issues are being refracted through uh, not not just brow discourse, but um, yeah, the some of the language that's being used to to frame it. Absolutely, and it's not you know I did you know imply that Spectre and Nietzsche were using that phrasing uh, in kind of a marketing ploy. That's simply one one angle. They they you know as I try to make clear, they are committed to thinking about that music that way for their entire lives. Um, uh, but it, it means something different than it might mean to somebody else. I mean, Jack Nietzsche becomes a, 
film music arranger, uh, uh, you know, for Officer and a Gentleman and uh, a range of other big, big hit films. And he, you know, he studies uh, like any Hollywood arranger, he studies scores. I found a number of these in his, his collection. Uh, and, it, you know, but he's learning, he's hunting for textures. Right. Yeah. And so it's so when he said they're talking, it sounds like a Wagner opera. It's the like part that's supposed to be uh, <laughs> that you should pay attention to yes. uh, less yes. because it's 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 got a, it's got an impact and a drama, uh, yeah. you know, so there's other things that can be pulled out if you just yeah. look at the sentence in a different way. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's the it's the the focus on the work that that space is you know which is i guess a different what would you call it the uh not not strain the tension it's that like is what is holding open the tension absolutely sense. as opposed yeah. to yeah. like thumbs up thumbs down this is Wagner. this isn't Wagner, which is, <laughs> which is a vacuous point that's not you know, the most like, interesting thing there exactly. <laughs> it's a, right? it's a starting point it's it, yes. it's kind of like the paul whiteman stuff so many yeah. people got hung up for decades on is this or is this not jazz yeah. well yeah. actually why yes. you're asking that question is more interesting yes um <laughs> yes yeah the the impulse to have to like <laughs> to be able to cordon off the the influences this exact note right here right now that is jazz this yeah. note here is like the impulse to do that is more interesting and so it, kind of what you're doing is like, like let's not look at the the well you're not saying not we are still looking at the two things being compared but you're focusing on and keeping open that like you know the, the exactly and and creating multiple perspectives i think sure. really yeah. so that you can understand the tensions that are playing out for yeah. whatever entertainment purposes uh they are in a certain context and there are a variety of of, of those elements as you go across genres and and different Absolutely. tracks that i pull forward yeah yeah no and i mean we've we've been pulling in uh a number of of yeah, we, we've covered almost all, I think, bits of all of your book uh, <laughs> in our, but I, I was just going to, this idea, this this continuity that you're bringing out, that you're calling Luxpop, are there, are there two genres that, like, it was able to, it, it allowed you to bring together that you were surprised about? Like, you, I, I guess to the, you know, I guess one would be um, Paul Whiteman and Jay-Z, Seeing those two yeah. in the same chapter, that's a little wild, you know? So, like, what is, <laughs> what is this, uh, um, like, like, was there a surprise <laughs> that you were able to think of two musicians yeah. or genres in direct juxtaposition in, in this work? Um, I'll change surprise to delighted. So, there, yes. I mean, you can yeah. see that there's, 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 uh, I, I'm pleased to say there's an entertainment side to the work, the, this work, and uh, uh, you know it's 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 fun to play with this and to try to find stuff that illuminates, you know, what the thinking was behind it. I'd have to say that you know definitely the the first chapter uh, is my is my favorite for some of the reasons that you were just pointing out. You know, it, the framing is. These two live hip hop with orchestra performances in the 2000s, um, and I, I pull out 
two tracks from there. One is a 1996 track, Can I Live by Jay-Z from his debut, debut album. And the other is uh, a Kanye West performance of a track called Diamonds from Sierra Leone that uh, that uh, the 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 con the both of these are sample based or has have important samples. So the Jay Z one points back to an Isaac Hayes uh, cover of uh, um, Look of Love, and Kanye West borrows from a James Bond uh, uh, Diamonds Are Forever score. Um, so they're already pointing backwards uh, at other music. Um, I got uh, copies of the arrangements from the musical director. Uh, and uh, uh, so that that helps, you know, somewhat to start thinking about, I didn't get a chance to interview them, but we had a little bit of an exchange, but just what went into the performances and the stage spectacle. Um, but the stage spectacle in itself also points backwards to earlier traditions. I mean, Sinatra's got, you know, at this, I mean, sorry, not Sinatra, Jay-Z <laughs> at this point is already having tracks uh, that have, have um, lyrics like I'm the new Sinatra. Uh, so, uh, but he's on Radio City stage, uh, uh, you know, with a full big band plus strings. Uh, so there's a lot of references to previous cultural elevation and pop glamour and classy uh, American entertainment. Um, I had an epiphany for the chapter early on when I started trying to figure out what's what's the best way into all of this territory. Mm -hmm. And because I I can just I can remember sitting on a couch and I was, you know, Googling on my laptop um, and I came I hit upon the idea of six degrees of separation, you know, yeah, the yeah. used to be tied to what was it, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so and so worked with so and so worked with so and so, right? Yeah. But I started Googling that and it's like, dang, I, you can actually do this all the way yes, back to yeah. Paul Whiteman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you, you go not, through and Isaac. Not to, not to, and, and these aren't like, you know, it's like when you do the Kevin Bacon game, you know, like some of them yeah. are like this, this person went to school with the niece of a, pre you know, and like you have to make some like pretty extreme things, but you don't in this case, I guess is what I'm you, noting. Like, you don't. Actually, I mean, ser serious music well. projects yeah. where certain people's careers overlapped and it kind of suggested this rich view on music and staging. Um, but, you know, as, as a friend of mine pointed out when I first gave a, an early paper about this, you don't need to know the associations that are built up because these meanings are alive. But uh, I, what I do in the book is that I uncover the associations. But the first chapter gives this six degrees chart. Uh, it's kind of like a family tree. Uh, and so then I, you know, go back down to the 1920 and then I, I have snippets of uh, each step to to give this kind of roadmap to the book. Um, the funny thing was, as soon as I got uh, University of California Press reviews back, um, the, the reviewers wanted one of these for every chapter. They loved the the roadmap. <laughs> but oh, I, yeah. I I I I thought about it. I mean, I think the closest thing is is seen in my favorite contrasting chapter, which is the the uh, soft rock chapter, uh, yeah, chapter yeah. six, Damn mining gold. AM gold, um, thinking of K-Tail albums, AM gold. 
the 1960s MOR, which is Middle of the Road Pop Foundations of 1970s Soft Rock. And I have another uh, uh, kind of chart that I put in there, but I borrow that from, uh, uh, borrow and expand a chart from um, uh, uh, the R Rolling Stone magazine. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, but it, it, uh, I would, I would have loved to have done other charts like that, but it, it takes quite a, quite a while to see all of the connections that way between the, the areas, but it shows some of the playfulness, uh, that I allowed myself in creating yeah. a narrative for each chapter, figuring out what worked best, but this, this contrasting chapter six, um, uh, m most of most all of the music that I, I talk about is uh, this is going to be an anachronistic pre 1950 uh, but top 40 pop stuff that almost everybody knows yeah. uh, and I'm trying to come up with and and you know I saw that there was a, another way of talking about how it all uh, fits fits together as an entertainment aesthetic. So in, in that chapter, I go, uh, I look specifically at LA studio made lushly orchestrated soft pop from the 60s, Herb Alpert, Glenn Campbell, the uh, left bank, you know, walk away Renee, the turtles, uh, and then end up with the carpenters and bread yeah. um, and and 70s soft rock. Um, and that allows another moment that I've, and I've had a few across the chapter where it's not about elevating uh, in the same way. There's a lot of disparagement kind of, from kind of purist or in this case, rockist critics, uh, rock yeah. favorite critics. Um, but what you're, what you're seeing is really well-crafted and produced top of the line pop. Um, like I, I, I like to do with my, uh, you know, in my pop classes, I like to, you know, pull apart something like a Burt Bacharach tune and sh say, mm -hmm. you know, this, you might call this easy listening, but this is not easy music, right? This no, is, right. this is yeah. sophisticated stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the deepest gold of the golden oldies. Uh, yeah. And at the same time, you know, something like the Wall Street Journal in 1970 called this the sound of money. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which says a lot, you know, so it, I look at how this top 40 Lux pop function is middle of the road, blatantly commercial fare, you know, and what, but the fact that it also means a lot to different audience demographics. Um, there's different, we don't all appreciate this in the same way. Um, and, you know, ultimately, if you ask me as a teenager, are you going to be writing about disco and the Carpenters? <laughs> I yeah. would have said no way. <laughs> but yeah. I was too, yeah. too caught up in my rockist mindset, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like I'm teaching, I'm teaching a history of rock class. Um, and I, I was really caught up short by, um, you know, I, I asked them, you know, I was like, all right, don't, don't make this too complex. It was like the first day, but like, what's the track or something you've been listening to? Yeah. Um, and my version of this was I, I had, I, there was one of my students who, who looked at me and said, Nickelback. And like, <laughs> I, I went, and like me, as someone who like grew up in a cornfield and like liked rock music, but lived in yeah. a place, where some of the signifiers of kind of like, <laughs> like countryness was something I was against I'm like Nick and Nickelback seemed to kind of live right in that and I was just and I was just I had to like stop and like and she was confident and she owned yeah. it 
Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, and it's so easy to just jump on the party line, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I'm like, and I'm like, well, for no, me, no, no. I have to say what? But like, okay, all right. There's something. There's something. We, and, and like, I've had this shift, and I went back and I started listening to Nickelback again. I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, so it's like this weird type of like, you know, you can have like we we live in some of these things, and that's a good instance of you know. Oh, like, absolutely, like, absolutely, and stuff that the topics that we here and that uh, not just i guess that wasn't so much like a musical topic that was a name but it was <laughs> you know what i mean like they have babies. yeah but there's there's genre politics that are, that yeah. get played yeah. out there and issues of commercialism which we yeah. generally shy away from i mean that's in with the book project i, I i'm pushing i'm certainly pushing back at some of the our disciplinary um limits limitations that I, I grew up in, and it's it's probably more profound in my generation than perhaps yours uh, with, uh, you know, but it still exists. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, I really enjoy being able to have so many pop students uh, alongside my classical students here in Scandinavia, something which most uh, musicology departments don't really foster still across the US. So it's, uh, you know, these these tensions still exist uh, within our discipline. So I wanted to show how, you know, musicological, historic musicological methodology could be applied to the center of pop practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but in like, and in, in interesting, it's interesting you, you frame it that way, because it's also to contrast, I guess, that idea of how we can take, you know, uh, what's uh, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a review of David Lewin actually uh, when his mm. radical book came out, and someone referred to it as killing a gnat with a pile driver or something like that. <laughs> like so that, that, like that's and that's you know what I like mathematics, I whatever. But the the, the you might want to explain that one for audiences. <laughs> oh, the, the pile driver bit or the, or the Lewin bit? Lewin. Oh, oh, yeah. I live a weird you, life. You can where, insert it. You can insert yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I live a weird life where I do yeah. mathematical music theory on one side and then like philosophy and pop pop music on the other, and they don't always inter, inter, interject. But I guess the, the point that I wanted to, uh, to, he just brings out like, like graduate level style mathematics to analyze, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's kind of like the, the pile driver is you had to like construct, you know, very abstract algebra, algebraically based, blah, 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 define things. It's very heavy just to analyze Schubert. And that's kind of the implication. And so I wanted to pull that out in what you were saying is like, there is this shift of like you wanting to use these methodologies the pile driver um and in in this case um but not do it in a way that it reduplicated some of the brow discourse which i which i really appreciated which might get to a little bit of your uh the fun you have the 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 you know the relishing the enjoyment that you have in some of that comes through in your writing because it isn't that you oh, thank you these, thank you yeah you aren't using like i never got the sense of like i'm going to use Bordeaux, you know, or Bordeaux? No, Bordeaux, I, I, like, yeah, I, bread, I think there's know? a way around that. And, you know, very specifically, I mean, uh, so, so I do, I did very much uh, try to write the book for a, a general music interested 
audience and there's you know little asterisks that come in that mark off okay i'm going to go into a big i'm going to go a little deeper into music and i'm going to try to you know bring everybody along with me but if you want you can hop right over that and continue the other story right uh that's it 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 works that way but when i do bring in things like critical theory it's 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 meant to be accessible it's not shifting away from really trying to look at these these the primary sources and the stories that they're telling uh as an historian uh i'm I'm extremely uh, concerned with with that and but i bring in you know a lot of more contextual mid-century uh 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 discussion uh, yeah. from from academia about the brows because it, it continues well into the 70s and uh it it <laughs> from our perspective it also has its own qualities of entertainment uh yeah. as they yeah. as they redefine redefine the brows and and yeah. talk about shifts in consumer habits um and uh and i look at an american context rather than Bourdieu, uh, you know, uh, which I think I feel is more uh, relevant, like the one source that one source I bring in is a book called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. But it's a really smart discussion of, uh, you know, American taste cultures, which is what I'm centrally looking at. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's and it's it, it was it's a beautiful way of like, you know, the two sides and that's a the way that you just define that is like a way of getting around that. It's uh, in some sense, you're trying to put a number of historical documents of varying valences or registers in dialogue. And it it, it, it stops a little Absolutely. bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, like it isn't I'm going to apply this completely unrelated discourse that is really popular <laughs> in academia, you know, like, yeah. You know, like it, it, it and just yeah, I'm, like, I'm very, I'm very sensitive to that. I always have discussions with my students about that. Uh, you know, if if there's other ways of of approaching the similar sort of critical depth, uh, and and that you can, you know, I use the example if if we were able to show visuals of me holding my an object up between my two hands and looking you know, from every side at it, trying to figure out what's the story that I should tell with this yeah. thing I'm, I have in front of me. Yeah. Uh, it's not always your off the shelf uh, theory of the day. Yes, exactly. And, and like, it's the, in what, what often happens is like the theory, you know, in this type of like high looks down, you know, it's like the theory, it's like, ah, oh, from this theory, I'm going to just tell you about X. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not what you're doing, but it's also not just like the down looking up. Like you, you are, you really do hold those two things in tension where it isn't like, let me water down some theory of the day. Um, <laughs> and, and like, in, you know, perform this, like Make a I'm, middle brow accessible version of it. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, and and I, that is, it is interesting to hear how you, and, and now that you're saying that, um, I, I, I'm thinking back to that chapter on the when you went into the Brow discourse and like you were you were touching on the Bordeaux, uh, 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 but then you were like centering a different and and now I'm having a new a, a new appreciation for how that went down. You oh, know, thank like, you. <laughs> like 
I am also an academic who has read Distinction. You know, he went through all 500 pages and I, you know. That's right. Let me pull out my card to identify yeah, right. myself. Uh, that, yeah, that's the pile driver, you know. <laughs> yeah. You said that nicely. You know, there is, you know, it's like it, 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 it is a hard thing to be able to speak you know, it's, it, and again, to hold these registers in tension, to try to speak to multiple registers, but not essentialize the registers, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a challenge, but it's also a, 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 a writerly challenge. It's fun to, yeah. uh, to, to come up against. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, I, I'm trying to be cognizant of your time here. So I, I, I just want to uh, ask. Uh, so I guess just a little bit to transition toward the end. Um, mm. are, there, are there any other ends that, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to disco. That's, that's going to be our final thing. <laughs> I'm that. Um, are there any other threads from this project that you want to bring out? If not, um, yeah, no, we, I mean, we've, I think we've hit around, uh, much of it. Um, the, uh, I, I could bring up two or three, three areas here that I'm, I'm, uh, you know, that I think kind of make the book stand out a bit. Um, it's, it's a real attempt to look beyond the politics of genre to kind of see new understandings. Uh, I, I should back up and say that early on so i told you that there were seeds of this in the early 2000s coming stuff that 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 was in parallel to or that i put as a placeholder while i was working on uh you know ellington uptown because there are relevance there is relevance to that project you know about concert jazz to you know the the music that's in parallel to that uh that i talk about in hearing lux pop um uh, but I, I had already seen that there was a, the, you know, there, there's a way of going from 1920 to now, because pretty much every pop genre has flirtations with strings and conspicuous symphonization, even punk. Um, uh, and there was a book editor uh, for the press that I ultimately uh, went with that questioned how the book, you know, how the book project spanned post-1955 rock pop and then earlier jazz and jazz pop. Uh, they didn't quite understand why, why would you have a book that talks about both sides? Um, the, the world gets divided in 1955. Um, and that really kind of hit home to me that I needed to have a way to do that. And that's a little bit of the root of what happened uh, with the uh, the Jay-Z chapter. I wanted a way to kind of create this roadmap of something that that uh, is a quintessential American uh, entertainment sound. Um, uh, I brought up also, you know, the politics of musicology. One could extend that to pop music studies or cultural studies. Um, a lot of the book's music, uh, which again, as I said, everybody knows about, uh, mm -hmm. you know, from Sinatra to uh, Barry White um, to the Carpenters, there is very, still very, very little scholarship on it, um, musical cult or cultural uh, studies, um, despite its centrality. So it, to me, that was something that, that 
musicology should have something that something intelligent to say about this like the music or not there's something here that has to be looked at um so that you know that was part of the agenda certainly yeah Nickelback um, was a huge thing you know and like yeah me, absolutely. I got reaction of like I'm happy if you want to talk about you know the classic like I do pop music we're gonna talk about the Beatles and Radiohead and, yeah. and Ritiga, you know thank you Sweden big fan <laughs> um, you know like these absolutely are the, there's like the uh the the ordained uh yeah. pop but as you're and I yeah the, but this whole like Nickelback it's like oh yeah is there any skip <laughs> on Nickelback have, have you seen you know ha, have you seen Carl Wilson he's a he's a rock critic uh very smart rock critic uh, have you seen Carl Wilson's uh, 33 and a third series book on Celine Dion? No, I haven't. Oh, it's so oh. much fun. It's so much fun to teach because uh, now it's in an expanded version. It's This is a series of yeah. books by critics and uh, some some academics that uh, that are like the best album liner notes that you've never seen. Uh, but he, he grapples in that book uh, uh, with... He never ever liked Celine Dion, <laughs> so that's the whole premise of of writing an entire book on on Celine Dion. And there's got to be something said about that. You know, we should be able to have something interesting to say if we really spend some time with the, uh, you know, with the the thing itself and our own discomfort. I I, I felt this with. You know the politics of this guy Paul Whiteman. I was mentioning the the band leader from the 1920s. Um, he was pretty much a, a dirty word, a butt of jokes uh, yeah. for much of jazz historiography. Yeah. Um, uh, but he was one of the most beloved entertainers all the way to early television. He was at ABC's musical director, uh, ABC t Television's musical director, and ran the early versions of what became American Bandstand. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was a huge place in American culture. Uh, but I recognized when I wrote the Ellington uh, book, I had to talk about him uh, mm -hmm. because yeah. he's such a, a backdrop for this. And there was an arrange. I was noticing arranging traditions going back and forth between the black bands and, and these yeah. symphonic jazz white bands. Um, but it was that, you know, it was my Nickelback moment. I don't want to talk about Paul Whiteman. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. There's actually interesting stuff here. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's, it, it, uh, I would like borders to be opened up more. And it's similar, it's similar with some of the, I, I'm hoping that, you know, some of our non-musician readers would uh, out there that that come across this podcast won't be afraid of of immersing themselves in some musical discussion um, because it is meant to be accessible to a degree, but it's also you know to non musicians as well as musicians who can get something deeper. Um, I think presses these days have a fear of books that have some notation in it, but it still shows you graphical. Even if you don't what the, know what the notes are, it gives you a graphical sensibility of uh what's going on in a particular texture and then the, the the you know the prose will will articulate that um but there's so much of this uh, music that will talk about cultural importance but not really tie 
you know, as musical scholarship, not really tied to talking about the music. It's more interesting to talk about the, the, the performative and lyrical elements that have cultural meaning, but the music itself carries a lot of this meaning. Um, but we've also, uh, uh, you know, to close up this little area, um, I've talked about, you know, my, my skills and luck in finding um, archives or family archives of uh, arrangers with chart, you know, original charts. It's wonderful to look through those sorts of materials. But in the last uh, 10, 15 years of uh, internet, uh, the internet meeting DJ culture, there's been a, a wide variety of um, circulated what we call multi-tracks. So you, you have, when you listen to a recording, you have stereo left and right channels, but those can be built up of individual tracks for every instrument, you know, whether it's eight, uh, 16, 24, 32, 48. So for, uh, you know, this, the current disco book and, you know, the latter parts of the, uh, uh, hearing Lux pop, it's some of the first scholarship to really look at deeply at uh, multi-tracks uh, as a uh, evidence of you know creativity and thinking. And there's there's some fascinating things to to pull apart there. And there's other my I have peers and friends that are slowly coming up, uh, to studying this or or have been uh, someone like Alvin Zach who led uh, a good friend of mine uh, led with early studies of this. Um, but it's 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 not really something we talk about in academia, but it's it's so much defines post nineteen sixty music making. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to contribute to that thread as well. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I was. Uh, I, I think that comes out. I guess to give us a little bit of a transition over to disco, because I, I think that was a bit. Uh, there, there's a bit where you're like, hey, here's some of the way the tracks are set up. And it's like, although we just get the stereo at the end when they're being recorded and constructed and like, you know, shifted around, you know, you have one that's just like the guitars, for instance. Um, and then with disco, one that might just be the hi-hat, right? Yeah. One might be the snare. And like, it, it's a different type of like level of manipulation than... Uh, the, you know, for instance, uh, you know, you think of like early recording of everyone trying to desperately yell into one horn, you know, exactly. like, yeah. versus like, and, and I guess to use the drum example, the difference between a drummer and having one mic recording a room and hearing the drummer play versus having mics on individual aspects or individual drums and then in post-production being able to play with levels and being able to individualize in in some sense cut apart and then reassemble a you know a drum kit and how that absolutely i mean up, up through the 70s it's not as as easy to do that with no. outside of a digital uh, uh context but there's so much evidence of of uh you know how sounds are shaped because uh, you know, it's more than notes on the page. That's the beauty of spending time with multi-tracks as opposed to scores. Uh, with all the scores, you have to think about, well, how does the recording relate to this? It's fun to pull out, you know, in teaching big band classes, a really messy Charles, <clears throat> Charles Mingus big bands chart, because it takes a long time to figure out 
how how the two things relate. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a sketch, uh, that then is communicated verbally. Um, but even, you know, with the Sinatra stuff, uh, there's so much that ends up on the cutting room floor. Things are rethought, um, in the, uh, uh, Phil Spector element. The scores are really just a jumping off point for work in the studio where other contributions are added, where you get a particular sound of the strings, uh, a particular guitar sound, which has its own cultural meanings. And, um, you know, the, to be able to pull that apart and see uh, how all these elements interlock and became the final thing that we all know is so much more uh, in terms of meaning uh, for the types of things that I'm pulling apart uh, than just a score. Yes, yes. Hmm. But yes, Barry White is, is where I, uh, I end, uh, I choose to end the book. I had, I had a, um, another chapter, I still haven't published it, it's on Indie Rock uh, and uh, in the 2000s, and I'd done interviews with a range of people and an arranger who had written for the National and Grizzly Bear and a bunch of these early, you know, 2010s uh, Brooklyn bands. Um, and I talked to, I talk about in, in that work, uh, I've given it as a lecture in an, or a, you know, a public talk several times, uh, but there's the idea of no brow that gets uh, thrown around. But one of the, the readers, um, uh, uh, for for the press was really quite smart and saying you know that's not it, it's not exactly a, an extension of the classy entertainment aesthetics that yeah. you're talking about there's something different going on and perhaps that that's that's you know really where you should uh kind of cut uh, yeah. and perhaps have a quick overview. And so there is a bit of an overview in that uh, to talk about brow discourse in the, you know, post 2000 changes in taste cultures uh, that, that come along. And similarly, as you, as you go across, uh, uh, you know, disco, we start to have some, some of these changes in what classic culture is. Fashion uh, brings in a lot of low street culture, right? You, you shift from uh, the glamorous stage fashions and uh, uh, glitter <laughs> to, to uh, much, much more uh, streetwise fashion. Um, you have with things like Donna Summer's I Feel Love, uh, a, a you know shift to synthesize sounds. Um, you get rock elements added later by the 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 seventies, um, and there get begins to be a, a shift between hardcore dance music and uh, commercial pop disco, which still has a lot of connections to the orchestral pop trends that you know we've we've talked about. But I realized it, it was just. It was too messy to do well and to add an additional chapter on the 70s. The balance worked well, getting up to the, 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 an understanding of, you know, the foundation of disco in this very white sound. And I also talk about, uh, in the previous chapter, uh, uh, the Philly soul sound of uh, Philadelphia International Records. 
uh, and a range of other contributing threads. Uh, but it allows me to kind of, the, the, all of this, the, the press around Barry White allowed me to kind of come up with a, uh, a good sense of conclusion of, of a, a last full high point of this classy American culture as, as disco's emerging. Um, but I had looked, you know, widely at a range of other disco topics. Um, I don't know when you came across the book, but Amazon for a while mistakenly listed Hearing Lux Pop as volume two. Uh, and what they really meant was California Studies in Music and Sound and Media, book number two. It's the series. But it was listed as volume uh, number two. Oh. And I was, it made me think, though, well, what is volume two? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and it made, you know, it made an awful lot of sense to then look at this messier period of disco, particularly as I kept stumbling across more resources. Um, and some of the things that I uh, was talking about in terms of archives um, are interesting as, as you start looking at, at, at disco. I, I, I'm on a research sabbatical, so I'm, I have the luxury of a year where I can focus on, on research. Um, and I was in New York for two months and then one, one in Los Angeles. Um, I found a mountain of, of rich materials that haven't been looked at since the 70s. A lot of interviews with people uh, that were never really published and uh, uh, scores and, and, and other materials alongside, you know, a, scouring the internet for various multi-tracks and, and other materials. Um, and uh, uh, but what I noticed with, with archives is, um, for example, the New York public, New York is the center of, of, of disco. They have zero uh, collections that were very specifically brought in to represent disco, while at the same time, the uh, special collections off uh, room had you know 15 display cases devoted to the history of, of hip hop, celebrating it as uh, you know, the first 50 years of hip hop, here's disco ramen cups, here's a, card, a 3D comic book, here's, you know, all of these other things. Um, but what I found were uh, some archives of writers uh, that were involved in uh, uh, writing about uh, disco in the era. I found an archive of a, a promotions person that handled like 70% of uh, uh, the disco, black disco artists. Um, it, you know, is, it's a huge amount of materials to go through, but it, it, it shows that there is, uh, you know, if hip hop's being celebrated for 50, for 50 years and what was Cool Herc doing in the Bronx, <laughs> playing in the Bronx 50 years ago, well, he was playing disco uh, at first. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's something that needs to be done. There's still this, it's not a, 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 you know, I talking it over with the New York public archivists, it wasn't a conscious thing. It just kind of this, com the commercialism of disco is kind of always put it to the side of something that they should be at paying attention to. And I think they're actually going to make a push to try to, you know, talk to 
artists and industry people uh, that are in their 70s or above uh, that worked in the disco era to try to start resolving that. But it, it, uh, it is not a topic that has received too much attention. There's a couple of academic books, um, but even they have avoided uh, the central heart of discomania, commercial discomania. It's they, you can focus on DJ culture and hard hardcore dance culture. Yeah. Uh, there's one book in that direction, another that looks at quite rightly the the uh, importance of of disco for uh, uh, you know the rise of of uh, queer pride uh, culture and feminism and and so forth. Um, but it's this commercial, ugly commercialist heart <laughs> that oh. people still haven't been looking at. And so I'm, I'm focusing on, you know, chart crossover from the dance dance charts from 74 when they start to the mainstream uh, top 40 hit pop in the 70s uh, and looking at the business of disco mania. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds fascinating. Like it's, it's, I, I, I'm excited. I'm, I am excited to, uh, I'm excited to, re to, to hear more and, 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 and read that whenever that comes out, because the disco for me being born in the early nineties was the thing that my parents had that most guttural react like they, that was their nickelback in many ways oh absolutely you know so <laughs> it's like a weird thing that i did not have much connection with but, but, in like but the you know I, I was saying i was saying earlier you know i was at a it, you know my small swedish town's gym this morning and there were three 19 year olds that were listening to yeah. uh uh kung fu fighting uh yes. this berry, berry white knockoff uh from an english band uh and uh, you know everybody knows that, yes, just like okay. at ev every wedding you have September played, uh, you know by Earth, Wind, and Fire, oh, or right. you know right. we know the Bee Gees. It's great pop music, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we didn't get into guilty pleasures, but it's often, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I I've, I've met someone that you know every morning she. Uh, she does, has a workout routine to disco. <laughs> and, you know, I keep hearing people's disco stories. I have my own, but uh, that's another time. <laughs> no, and, and it's and it's interesting, like, I, I had a similar thing to, I, I was, you know, to do an analogy, I was introduced introduced to the Beatles late. Mm, um, mm. Like, like I was, you know, I'd been listening to rock music or whatever for, you know, I just never got into the Beatles. Um, and then I finally like listened to the Beatles. I'm like, oh my God, I know every single one of these songs. And I had a similar, you know, like I'd already yeah. heard yeah. all of them. I just didn't know yeah. it was the Beatles. And it's Welcome the to the age of the internet where everything lives uh, forever. <laughs> and, and, and like, and this, it was a similar thing with disco in that like, in reading that chapter and starting to pull some of this stuff out, I'm like, oh my God, that's, di I don't think I even knew what, di you know, it's like I had this like yeah. moment. I, it's like I had this like stock image of what disco was, and it was basically the Bee Gees. Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean, I think that, I think there's something to that. I, I, yeah. I talked with uh, 
you know, a record exec re recently, and uh, he, uh, uh, you know, really was was pointing out that uh, you know there's still all of these these uh, preconceptions of what disco is. It's seventies yeah. music broadly, um, yeah. uh, you know, and it, it on Spotify lists if you, you you get more plays if you call something dance music rather than calling it disco, um, and uh, uh, there's 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 still this kind of stigma and boxing but it's not fully been articulated he he was trying to to and I, I will definitely follow this this thread um you know disco proper is really you know commercial minded targeting uh towards the dance music scene by by um uh, very much uh borrowing from other recordings think the Bee Gees breakthrough with uh, as you go from jive talking to you, you should be dancing. They go from England to Miami, where Casey and the Sunshine Band's uh, 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 studio is. Uh, use the exact same engineers and 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 studio, uh, and and absolutely, you know, pick and choose elements from hit dance recordings to create these their their new sound. They they had died with some it had a lot of a big failure album in 1944 um, that uh, uh, moved them closer to R&B but it really was kind of schlocky <laughs> and then we get this this shift to dance floor Bee Gees but it's very much targeting uh, a market and uh, the dance mania trend that's happening uh, and borrowing from hit recordings off of the top 40 charts but that's another book <laughs> yeah, no no I'm, I'm i'm just i'm excited because they i know <laughs> it's it's one of just even reading you know your chapter on barry white i'm just like yeah this is a this like it was a great moment of me going i always thought i knew what disco was but i don't think i uh, there's a lot going on here and i so i'm excited to uh i don't know to to explode that up with you and like and like and it's more good listening. Right? <laughs> yeah come on <laughs> I, I mean you know i send this out to my students i'm sorry my one student i'd much listen to disco than the nickelback still but i will <laughs> i will do my duty uh, but uh yeah. all right i've taken i've taken enough of your time um it's been a pleasure i appreciate it uh i hope we uh continue to talk. So thank you very much, Nathan. Absolutely. Thank you for being with us, John.